So uh, I made a new friend this week. Uh, his name's Terry. He's a homeless guy. And as we were talking, I said, you know, you can show up to church on Sunday morning. It's you know, and grab something to eat in the back. We'll you know feed you and stuff. And he goes, because I haven't taken a bath in like a week. I stink really bad. And I said, that's okay. They all stink too. <laughs> Seriously, you do. Anyway, uh, hi, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so welcome to you if you are new and you don't own a Bible. There are Bibles in the back, and I'll explain these really quick since there are Bibles in the back. Uh, we give away a couple hundred Bibles a year, and so we decided this time we would just have Bibles made with element covers. We had to buy like 3,000 of them to get them made, but that's okay. We have like, every once in a while, someone from prison will send me a little military letter, and I'll mail them a box of Bibles. I don't know what they do with them. Maybe they make moonshine. I don't know, but, you know. Oh, I love this Psalm 119, you know. It's the best. <laughs> Anyway, so, so we ended up buying like 3,000 of them. And so if you do need a Bible, you can grab one and have one. We'd love to give you one. Now, if you're one of these people who are like Christians and you've got like 20 Bibles in your house because it's like every time they come out with a new version, you're like, i got to buy the new version, and that's you, okay. You can take one, but we'd really appreciate it if you grab them from the Welcome Center in the back and pay like five bucks for it uh, because five bucks will pay for that Bible and one we can give away. But if you don't have one, we'd just love for you to have one. So don't be like, oh, I'm new and I don't own a Bible. Take it. Go home with it. Now, they are really cheap because I said they're like two fifty a piece and if it rains, don't go like this because it'll be this big by the time you get home. <laughs> we did. Mikey designed the front and I wrote the little thing on the back. And... Don't clap for me. I'm just saying. It's your money. <laughs> so if you don't have a Bible, you can... Have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. You do have a smartphone. You download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on Live and Uversion. brings us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions that all go along with this. Uh, so last week, apparently, Jonathan was making fun of me. I asked him, I go, do I really do that when I tell it? Something wrong with me. Something wrong with me. So I made a New Year's resolution. I'm going to talk slower. I will break it by the end of this service. Because <laughs> yeah, seriously, apparently my messages could be like an hour long if I slowed down. But I'm ADD, so we just blast right through them. Uh, if, if you are a member of Element or consider Element in your home, a week from next Sunday on the 27th, we're doing an all-church meeting at 6 p.m. Uh, on that Sunday night. And you are welcome to come to that. We're going to talk about uh, kind of where we're at, our vision, our budget, and all that kind of stuff. And you are welcome to come to it. Probably put you to sleep. Uh, I'm not leading the meeting. Our uh, board chair is. So if you want to, you are more than welcome to come to that. All right, I want you to stand with me reading God's Word. We will get started here. So Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who walk by faith in you, and that no matter what comes our way, we would trust you for what has been sifted through your hands and live lives that fully focus on who you are and what you intend for our lives. Amen. Have a seat. So this is Genesis week 50. Uh, if we were married, this would be like our golden anniversary. But it's not because we're just doing weekly, and so this is our one-year point. If you want to give us gold, we'll take it, though. You know, it's 
the economy, we're good with that. Uh, we're going to cover the rest of Genesis in about half the time that we covered to where we are. So we're going to be done right around the end of June. And so we're calling this Genesis the final chapters. Now open your Bibles to Genesis 32. That's where we were last week. Now, as Jonathan talked about last week, you see huge changes take place in the life of Jacob. Uh, Throughout his life, Jacob has never been shown to seek God, to chase after God. And here in Genesis 32, he takes the initiative and he realizes that God is the one who has seen him through all the self-inflicted turmoil in his life. He actually says to God in verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Jacob finally starts to think more than just about himself. He thinks more about God. And he sees all the adversity in his life that took to get him to this point where he is. And as you saw last week, see, he knows Esau's coming. Esau's right around the corner, his brother that wants to kill him. And so in verse 11, he, put, he prays, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. And he realizes that his fear of his brother has probably caused him to do a lot of the things in his life he shouldn't have done. He says that he, he may come and attack me, the mothers with their children. So he's thinking more than just about himself. He's thinking about his children and his wives. And he begins to realize now that life is bigger than what he thinks it is. The world around him is so much larger and holds more promise than he ever imagined. And at this point, you know, the only element he's really ever known in his life is himself and his desires. And now he begins to understand life is about God and others and ultimately his calling. And that his fear of others and not fear of God has kept him from truly living the life that God has called him to. So, now my first week back with you guys, you're probably thinking I'm going to talk about something really fun. I'm not. We're going to talk about fear. You're welcome. You're going to totally enjoy this. Throughout the Old Testament, it is clear that wisdom comes from a living relationship with God. And in that living relationship with God, we must understand proper fear and respect and love and hope. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, the book of Proverbs is what's called wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature in the scriptures is structured around a very high view of God and a very low view of man in an effort to keep us from elevating our own wisdom above God's wisdom. Because when we elevate our own wisdom above God's, God's wisdom falls down underneath us and we look at everything else rather than what he actually says. The proper understanding of what things we must fear understanding that and the only thing we fear is god and we don't fear anything else that's the guiding principle of the wisdom literature and that must remain if someone hopes to continue to live in the wisdom of the living god now when i say fear god a lot of people don't like that they get really afraid like what does that actually mean some people think fearing god is totally barbaric now even non-christians have a fear of god it's usually like superstition. You know, I don't want to poke him in the eye. I don't want to make him mad. It's, it's like, well, I don't want to go into the church. I'll get struck by lightning. When I go to weddings, I, I usually show up. Well, to the wedding, I wear a suit. But to the rehearsal, I'll wear like blue jeans and a T-shirt and usually a beanie. I kind of look like a bum. It's okay. So I show up because no one knows really who I am at a rehearsal because a lot of weddings I do aren't for you guys. They're for other people who just call and get a hold of me and someone likes the wedding I did somewhere else. Anyway, so I'll show up like that and I'll just sit around and I'll talk to people. And then when the rehearsal starts, you know, people go, oh, what do you do? I go, well, I'm the minister. I cannot tell you how many times people apologize to me. <laughs> oh, I'm really so, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. That joke was really inappropriate. And I'm like, why? Why are you apologizing? It's like, it's like apparently I'm in close proximity to God. And so by virtue of that, they might get whacked. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Now, that's, that's an unrealistic fear of God. A proper fear of God is like kids with a good dad. And I emphasize the word good 
dad. You know, moms sometimes can yell at their kids all day long, but when dad comes home and it's like dad's angry, it's like, oh, crap. Dad's dad's man. But when it's not like, oh, my dad's going to beat me, but a proper view of their dad as my dad has authority. And my dad can bring about all the destruction my mom was talking about. It's it's that that kind of idea. So kids know the love of their dad, but it's different because you don't want your dad to get mad. Practically, if we live with a God that is too small to be feared, certain things will happen in our lives. The effects of not fearing God. Proverbs one twenty nine to 31. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill on their own devices. This is the idea of cause and effect. What happens when we don't properly respect and honor and fear who God is? Cause and effect, like mouse, cheese, trap, whack. Right? Either it's dead or your bones are broken and you're not getting away. If we don't understand the proper fear of God, our lives are going to suffer. Sometimes this leads to people not wanting to read their Bible, not because they don't want the knowledge, but because it convicts them and they don't want to read things that convicts them. Mark Twain once wrote, It is not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that concern me. It's the parts that I do understand that really trouble me. Some people, they hate knowledge. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to get in the gospel community. They don't want to be part of any accountability. They don't want to heed God's rebuke, and that leads to certain effects in our lives. And if we don't understand who God is, we have the propensity to create a God in our own mind of our own making, and he looks a lot like Santa Claus. And then we worship that God and call that God. Fools hate knowledge, and they hate God, and they hate that there is a God. Proverbs 23, verse 17, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. If you don't properly understand the fear of who God is, you will become jealous of everybody else. You'll think, well, how can I not get caught doing all the things they're doing? Because you know God's there, and he just wants to whack you. And that's not proper fear of God. Proverbs 29, verse 25, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If you don't understand the proper fear of God, you will fear everything and everyone else. You will begin to create your own little canon of scripture and what you believe is the truth. You will love people like Deepak Chopra and Oprah. And I have no idea why their names rhyme, but they do for some reason. You know, you begin not to revere God's word. You'll quote songs and authors and, and men and poets And men and women will have a very high place in your life, and the scriptures will have a very low place. And when those two things come into conflict, you will take what people say over what the scriptures say. And that becomes a big issue. And God says, when you do that, you become a fool. Aren't you glad I'm back? There you go. All right. These are the effects of fearing the Lord correctly, understanding what that fear of God looks like. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. See, when you understand properly who God is, we come to God sober-minded. We listen to the things that he wants to say to us. Sometimes, you ever go see a movie and you tell your friends, well, I didn't like that part. That's like every movie. Come on, people. That's like every movie. Okay, I don't like, I I was, you're going to think I'm totally sacrilegious by saying this, but I was watching the movie Lincoln like last week. I I swear I sat through at least half that thing before I got so bored. Um, my wife says it was like 20 minutes in, but uh, whatever. Okay, so I'm watching this movie, and if you haven't seen it, I'll just ruin the first scene because it's not historical. Lincoln's sitting on this thing, and these guys come up, and they're quoting the Gettysburg Address to him, and it's just really contrived and really cheesy, and I look at my wife, and I go, I don't 
like that part. I think that was just terrible. And we can do that to movies, but we cannot do that when it comes to the word of God. We can't go, well, I don't like that part. That's, that's, what's, that's where it is. So we trust the things that God says. We don't come to God and say, well, I don't like that part. I'm not going to listen to you. Proverbs 16, verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Sometimes when you properly understand who God is, it keeps you from doing certain things. And that's not a bad thing. Proverbs uh, chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 14, 26, he who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Proverbs 22, verse 4, humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. What it tells you is that you have a high view of God, you get wisdom. You have a low view of God, you become a fool. You have no legacy. You might have a whole bunch of beer bottles stacked up in your room, but you have no legacy. So Jacob begins to understand the only one who he needs to actually fear in the proper way in this life and respect and honor is God. So now he's going to encounter his brother Esau as quickly as possible. You've got to remember his brother Esau wants him dead. God takes Jacob. Jacob trusts him. And as soon as he does, God places Jacob into harm's way. But now he willingly goes and he does not run. This means for you and I, we must trust the promises of God in hardship. We must walk by faith. Jacob says in this prayer, God, you are faithful and I am not. I am scared and I know that you have promised to be my God. So tomorrow I will walk into harm's way and I'm going to trust you. And when he prays that, does anything happen? No. No angel shows up, no burning bush, no confirming sign, but he walks forward and he trusts God. So Genesis 32, starting in verse 13, which is where Jonathan left off last week, says this. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes, not you, but you lambs, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Now that is a huge gift. I mean, you're thinking, I hope nobody gives that to me. I don't want to clean up the poop. Right? But in this culture, that is a huge gift. This is, this is like a huge effort at sucking up. Here's a new house, and it's fully furnished, lots of stuff, and a Bentley in the garage. You're welcome. That's, that's what this is. So Jacob, he believes God, but he covers his butt. Okay? That's just kind of what's going on here. He's a guy who's still growing, learning to trust God more and more. In the end, he will give Esau 550 animals, 490 of which are female. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. Kissing up. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. So it's like, Here's a camel. Jacob says hi. That's what they're supposed to do. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. So here's a camel. Jacob says, Hi. Next drove comes up. Here's a 3D LCD TV. Jacob says, Hi. Next drove comes up. Here's an Xbox. Jacob says, Hi. Next drove comes up. Here's a Lamborghini. Jacob says, Hi. Okay? That's, that's what's going on. Um, 
what happens, it says, it says, for he thought, this is in truth, I will buy him out, right? But uh, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. He will kiss me and not run his sword through me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So he's still scared. He's like, you know, I'll let him play with the Xbox. Maybe he'll be nicer tomorrow. So the next thing is he sends his family across the river. He spends the night alone on his side of the river. We don't know why he does this. Uh, he may be praying. He may be contemplating his life, what's going to happen ahead of him. Okay, so he's sitting there on that side. So verse 22, that same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, plus his daughter, even though she's not mentioned, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And now this scene actually shifts. He's alone, and then God shows up to wrestle with him. Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in these verses. There's a lot of different interpretations of what it is. Books and books and books have been written. And so this morning, I'll tell you what's right. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, this seems like a nightmare because Jacob at this point is probably somewhere between 45 and 100 years old. We don't exactly know. Uh, So he's older. He's alone. He's in the dark. He gets up to go pee again because he's older. Okay? And some dude jumps him and wrestles with him all night long. Now, I don't know if any of, any of you have ever been in a fight. And I did say good fight, but I guess a good isn't really good when it comes along to fight. I mean, I'm not talking about like these movies, these tween emotional, oh, we're going to, you know, not like, I mean, I mean a fight where it's like baseball bat to baseball bat. You're just brawling. No one's going to ever find the body, that, that kind of thing. Guys, not with your girlfriend. Oh, my God, in a fight. I took her out. You know, not, nothing like, like that. Real fighting is exhausting. If you ever see boxing, they train for months before a fight. MMA fighters, months before a fight, by the end of the first round, they're hanging on each other. Because <gasps> fighting is exhausting. So, if you're going to get in a fight, do it like the Bible says, like Jesus did. You do it at night and you jump someone from behind. It's biblical. It's biblical. Jacob's distressed. Jesus walks up, smack, let's go. Now, why, why does he do this? Because Jacob has been running scared his entire life. And this night, Jesus teaches him to become a man. I mean, sometimes God does that with us. And you're thinking, yeah, now my life makes sense. Jesus showed up and he beat me up. That's, that's how it works. God doesn't grow us all the time by giving us tea and playing tapes of rushing water and aromatherapy and giving us massages. God allows our lives to go through hardship and trouble. So we do not fear the hardship and trouble, but we learn to trust God. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who I believe is probably one of the best theologians America has ever produced, he writes extensively about this section of Scripture when God shows up to fight with Jacob. He points out that Jacob is seeking God's mercy and his blessing on the occasion of Esau coming to meet him. And so Jonathan Edwards believes that Jesus doesn't jump him, but Jesus and him have this conversation before the fighting takes place. And this is what he says. The wrestling denotes the seeming opposition that God oftentimes makes to a person when seeking his blessing. When God has design of bestowing the blessing on persons in answer to prayer, he stirs them up to be earnest in seeking. And oftentimes, four times, seems not to hear and regard the request, but on the contrary, seems to oppose and resist them, which is for a trial of a person's resolution, constancy, and perseverance in seeking for. He basically says that he wants Jacob to appreciate the blessing when he got it. You know, the blessing is a gift of grace, but he wanted Jacob to appreciate it. Like, if you have kids and you bought them Christmas presents, they have this list, and you give them everything on the list, about two months after they get everything on the list, it's broken, and they don't care about it anymore. You know, God wants Jacob to understand this blessing is a gift, and I will walk with you through this hardship, but I want you to understand what this blessing really is. And sometimes that means it's darkest before the dawn. They wrestle till the break of day. 
What you have to understand about Jonathan and Sarah Edwards is that they fully understood this in their life. It totally made sense to them. They hoped in God. But in one part of their lives, they lose one of their daughters who was actually helping someone else who had this disease, and she caught it while helping them, and she dies. Jonathan Edwards pastors a church for years, but was asked to leave because he stood up for what was right, and his board sent him away because they didn't want to do what he was counseling them to do. So he literally goes and lives in the wilderness with his family for years. He eventually becomes president of Princeton College. At Princeton College, he decided to inoculate everybody against smallpox at the college. He dies a week later because of the inoculation that he got. And again, yet, he was probably one of the greatest theologians America has ever produced. And he says there's a fourfold trial and perseverance of Jacob seeking this blessing that God had said he would give to him. And these are the four parts of this. said, number one, that God opposes Jacob in this wrestling. Secondly, that he denies Jacob for so long. The third thing is that he adds another trial by popping Jacob's out of hip out of joint, which you'll see in just a second. And then fourth, that he says, I'm going to leave before the breaking of day. And Jacob has to hold on and say, no, give me the blessing. See, God is going to bless him, but he wants him to understand how sweet that blessing is. So they wrestle all night long. Again, I personally think this is Jesus wrestling with him. I believe Jesus humbles himself to Jacob's level. He doesn't kill him, but he wears him out because Jesus is going to teach Jacob courage and fortitude and masculinity. You ran from your brother. You ran from your uncle Laban, and now you're crying, oh, save me. Well, I'll take care of you, but you've got to toughen up. If he's got to go home and deal with Esau and found a nation, he has to toughen up. God's men need stamina and fortitude. They need conviction. We must live and stand for the promises of God. A man is not somebody who's good at baseball or likes watching sports on TV or can drink a whole lot of beers. A man is somebody who loves God with fortitude and conviction and stands up for the right things. If you are a dad or become a dad and you have boys, you should wrestle with your boys. You should get down on their level and and wrestle with them with as much strength as they have, their level. It's like, hey, let's go wrestle, son. Okay, dad, boom, I win. Okay? You don't do that. You get down on there. That's what Jesus does to Jacob. Teach them to be. You're like, oh, you're so strong. I can just imagine Jesus going, yeah, woo, this is a tough one. Woo, you know. I, I can just, I can totally, totally see it. It's like he, he pushes Jacob. Jacob pushes back. He's like, Jacob, you're going to learn to hold your ground. Because if God's going to give him, the, be the founder of this nation, and Jacob's going to lead these wives and, the, and these children, he's got to have some strength, conviction, and masculine dignity. That's what he needs. And at this point, Jacob doesn't know this is God. Verse 25, when the man saw they did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, I was listening to somebody talk about this as they were explaining the story to their two little boys. The two little boys were talking about all the moves they think Jesus would have used. Like he would have piled driver, he had a karate chop to the neck. And one of them said, well, I wonder if Jesus kicked him between the legs. You know, he said nuts, but I didn't want to be vulgar. <laughs> but I just said it, so whatever. Okay, so he, some rabbis think maybe because the hip socket has this connotation of, of a hollowness. The word has a connotation of hollowness like a pouch. And so, and so don't think I'm all crazy about this. Some nationalistic rab, uh, rabbis actually believe that Jacob's pouch being touched showed that the whole nation of Israel would spring forth from that touch. I personally think J- Jesus touched his hip because be, if he did kick him, that's a tough kick. You're going to limp the rest of your life from that. I mean, that, that's crazy. And if you're a guy, you know, you know, you know, you want anybody to do that to you. Actually, Deuteronomy 25 verses 11 and 12 says, don't do it in a fight. That's unfair. I'm only talking to you guys. So Jesus walks over and touches his hip, and now he's got to limp for the rest of his life. Now, why does Jesus do this? I think he does it to show Jacob, look, I could have crushed you at any time, but I didn't. 
but I didn't. Uh, he humbles himself to make Jacob a man. I think he's telling Jacob, you still need to respect me. You've got to understand who I am in this because I could have crushed you, but I didn't, and I loved you instead. And Jacob's going to walk with a limp the rest of his life, but he will remember every time he limps the God who could have crushed me decided to save me and make me a man instead. He knows God loves him with every limp he takes. Verse 26, then he said, let me go. This is the guy who wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. Jacob's like, you know, I'm, I could be, you know, 50 to 100 years old. I held my own. I'm a little crazy, you know. I, I did it. Literally, in the, in the Hebrew, this would be written as, you have detained me long enough, even the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this is good. I think like Jonathan Edwards talks about, this is one of those trials that God's taking Jacob through. He's learning. Verse 27, and he, this guy, says to him, what is your name? Now, if it is God wrestling with Jacob, don't you think God would know Jacob's name? Yes. Okay, good. Now, if you've been through this for any length of time with us in Genesis and you've watched Jacob's life and what God has been doing through the book of Genesis, I hope you, you can begin to see what is actually now happening. God asks, what is your name? Jacob has spent his entire life running from who he really is. He has struggled with God because he hasn't trusted him. He has never been okay with just being Jacob, being who God made him to be. This running from God has affected every relationship he has ever been in. And as long as Jacob was not trusting God and who God made him to be, he was envying and fearing everyone else. Jacob claimed to be Esau, but as long as he wanted to be Esau, he would never be who God made him to be. Who was Jacob? So God says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Here is the first time Jacob is truly honest about his name and who he is. He doesn't lie. He tells the truth. He owns up to who he is. Jacob is finally okay being Jacob, and it's only through trial and perseverance and wrestling and where God took him to be. And what I think is really funny about this is as soon as he says, my name is Jacob, God goes, okay, not anymore. Now you're Israel. I think it's just hilarious. God's like, great. Now I'm going to change your name. But God finally leads him to the person that he wanted him to be. Verse 28 says this. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I mean, I love this scene. Now you're no longer Jacob. Now you are a nation. Until now, God has been known as the God of Abraham and Isaac. Jacob has not become one of the patriarchs yet. He has not stepped into the calling that God has given him. And the moment he stops trying to be somebody else, and the moment that he trusts God is the moment that he becomes the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, Israel can mean different things. It can mean this whole idea of one who struggles with God and with men and overcomes. Not you win over God, but with God you prevail. Some commentators believe that up to this point in Jacob's life, he was called Israel Jacob, like Israel Jacob instead of Israel, meaning Jacob will strive or Jacob will rule. But now God changes his name to Israel, El meaning another name for God. So God will rule in your life now, Jacob. Yeah, you got a limp, you got a fat lip, but from now on, your name's going to be the name of a nation. And through Jacob's family line, Jesus comes who saves us all from this time forward. 1,800 times in the scripture, the name Israel is used either towards this man or towards the nation. And that tells you that God is faithful. God used every circumstance in Jacob's life to conform him to the person of dignity and purpose that God needed him to be. Which means for you, everything that has come to you has either come from the hand of God or been sifted through the hand of God. And sometimes instead of trying to find a way out of our trouble, instead of taking our trouble that has happened to us and becoming victims the rest of our life and always pointing to it, no, this may be who I am. What we need to do is look at this and say, how can I know and serve and love God better through this trial? 
Because the question becomes, would you rather limp with God's blessing or would you want to run and skip without one? Because I think Jacob for the rest of his life realized, I would rather limp with God's blessing than anything else in my life. Jacob found that all of his hardship was for this moment. Verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? The text is really brief, but it's really like is, what's your name? You know who I am. I mean, that's kind of what the text says. And there he blessed him. And I don't know how that works. In my mind, I see Jacob on his knees and Jesus lays hands on him and says, love me, follow me, honor me, understand what proper fear is supposed to be. And when it's over, you are going to be with me. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, which means the face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. See, Jacob now understands who he's been wrestling with all night long. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. In life, there is good hurt and bad hurt, and this is now a good hurt. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Sometimes, you know, Jews don't eat certain things because it's got theological significance behind it. It's not just superstition. See, Jacob, he is a sinner from the womb. He is a deceiver, a whiner, a trickster, a coward, and he runs away. Twenty-plus years he spends in slave labor. He prays to God but doesn't have a whole lot of faith, and yet God still comes and makes him into the man he needs him to be. And now he's ready to go take the land and live the promises that God has said. See, we are faithless, but it is God who is constantly faithful. And you will notice if you look through this text that not everything gets resolved in the story. There's not a little bow on top. You know, what's the conclusion? There's no resolution. He didn't go home yet, didn't deal with his brother Esau yet, didn't deal with his sin yet, and that's the point. In America, we love TV programs that are half an hour, an hour long, and at the end, they all get tied up, right? Unless it's the end of the season, then it's cliffhanger. But for the most part, during the season, everything gets wrapped up at the end of an episode. And guys, our, our lives are more like scriptures than the TV shows. You will leave here, and not everything in your life is going to be resolved. But you will, if you choose, leave here with a relationship with the living God, just like Jacob. I mean, J- God doesn't promise Jacob you won't get killed. You're, he doesn't promise him your wives are going to make it. God just says, go. Well, what if they kill me? Well, then you'll be dead, and God will still be God. That's how it works. We trust God and go on with our lives. We don't second guess what God's doing. We need to trust because we live in a dark world, and most of the time we cannot see. So we trust the only one who can see. We trust him. Even in the midst of our trial, even when it seems like God takes great pleasure in beating us up, we still trust him because he knows what he is doing. And he has been faithful from the beginning. And he is faithful today, and he will always be faithful and so we become a people who trust in that god and honor and love and in a proper sense fear and respect him because that is what faith is every week we invite you guys to communion because communion reminds us of our god who has been ever faithful and true you see he calls us to this table in a place of remembrance you know communion is not magical but it's supposed to reset our minds so that we understand that our god has been faithful from the beginning He came and did what he said he was going to do. He promised Jesus. Jesus comes, saves us all. And he works through this crazy family to do it. And so we invite you to break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grapes that reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can actually be called sons of God. We have been, as a people, adopted into his family. And yes, sometimes, you know, he has us go through certain things because many times he wants us to appreciate it. But he takes us through those things, and he is always faithful. Well, what if this next trial kills me? Well, you know what? Then you'll be dead, and you'll see him face to face. Sometimes it's better than this.
You know, God is always faithful and good. And we walk forward into what he calls us to because he is good. The band's going to come up, do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you're going through something and you don't see the end of it and you're stuck in the middle of this trial and you don't know what to do, pray with them. They love to pray with you to help reset and refocus your mind upon who Christ is and his work and what he has done because he is a good and faithful God. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, so giving is simply part of our worship. And there's some food and stuff in the back. If you run into my friend that I met this week, great, say hi. And you can say, yes, we all stink, and be great. You'll just be in the same boat, too. So, uh, name's Terry, nice guy, so far. <laughs> anyway, guys, you've got to remember. You know, and, and as I was thinking about what we were talking about this week, I was thinking about when I, when I met Terry, and I was like, you know, and, and I said, you know, what circumstances brought you to this place in your life? And he starts walking through all this stuff. You know, I'm just thinking, man, you know, God, even in the midst of these trials, can bring about such great beauty. And that's what he intends to do for our lives, is bring about great beauty when we trust and honor and follow him, because he will bring about those things. So we trust him, because he is good, that we are a people who walk by faith in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning. I ask that we would be a people who understand that we must walk by faith in you because most of the time we cannot see. We live in a very, very dark world. And yet you see clearly. And so I ask that you would have us be a people who take your hand and trust you because most of the time it's not as just holding your hand, it's you holding us and carrying us where we need to go. Father, have us be a people who walk into the places you call us to go, even when we think it's scary, even when there's a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation. Because we are people who believe the words that you have said. We believe what you have done for us. And we honor you by how we live the lives that you have so graciously given to us. So today, for those of us in this room who are going through trials or you know, the trials that we just have of living a normal life, I ask that we would understand that it is your hand who has guided our every way. And it is your hand who will lead us home. And you who is ultimately trustworthy in everything. Because you have sought and saved your people. So today have us be those who bow down and worship to you. And honor all that you have been doing from the very beginning. And I ask that our lives will become those that bring great glory to you because we are a people who walk by faith. Amen.